right, well, good morning. As uh, Joe mentioned, my name is Jeff. I'm the assistant pastor here, and uh, I'm just here to say that if the Lord in His mercy and grace has anything to say to you today, um, give Joe a thank you, because, you know, we're talking about the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. Some of us uh, double book ourselves and say, yes, I can be on worship team and speak, and I can't do that. Um, so thank Joe, because he graciously let me uh, share today. Uh, instead of next weekend. So I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm really excited to share with you. We walked in this week, you walked in this morning, and all of a sudden Christmas just exploded in here, right? Like there's like poinsettias on stage, there's lights, there's trees, all these sorts of things. And honestly, I'm just here to say if it were up to me, like we would have none of these lights on and just do everything by Christmas tree lights. You know what I mean? Like I'm all about that. As soon as the Christmas tree goes up in our house. Um, the only lights I want on are the lights on the Christmas tree. It is just amazing. It's there when I wake up. It's there when I go to sleep. Absolutely incredible. And I always want to enjoy a Christmas movie by light of the Christmas tree. Um, I don't know about you. There are a lot of Christmas movies out there, and I think everybody kind of has a few that are beloved. I have a lot of blind spots in my uh, Christmas movie watch history. I've never seen like National Lampoon or Christmas Story of all, all those kind of things that some of you love. But there, were, there are a couple that, that I grew up with. Um, I can still hear the guy's voice in my head letting me know that on Sunday at 8, 7 Central, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is coming on CBS, and I'm all about that. I watch it every single year. When we got married, I said, babe, we're watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer at Christmas now. That's just how it works. Um, and then I also make a point at some point every Christmas season to watch like the original, not 2018, not 2002 or three or whatever, but like the real Grinch from 1966, uh, narrated and voiced by Boris Karloff, because that is the real deal. I love that movie. It's only 20 minutes. Do, do yourself a favor and watch that this Christmas. But um, another one for me, and I found myself thinking about it this week, was A Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, now, I haven't seen it in a while, and uh, it wasn't necessarily a mainstay, although we did watch it a fair amount growing up. But there's one particular moment from A Charlie Brown Christmas that I tend to remember better than all the rest of the movie. And that's Linus's monologue. Uh, and so if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Charlie Brown is trying to put on a Christmas production and it's going very, very badly. Like just all possible angles, it, it's a disaster. And so at one point he is frustrated, he is flummoxed, he is flabbergasted. And he says, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? And then there's Linus right next to him and he says, sure, Charlie Brown. I'll tell you what Christmas is all about. And then he gets up there and he goes right to the middle of the stage and they put the spotlight on and Linus reads, well, he doesn't read, he recites from memory, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And when I think about A Charlie Brown Christmas, I think about Luke 2. And when I think about Luke 2, I think about A Charlie Brown Christmas. And I just think about that stage and I think about the fact that at that point in the movie, there's no... There's no music, there's no applause, there's no big hype, there's no nothing like that. It's just Linus on a stage, talking, giving his little monologue, reciting scripture, and in case you're like me and you'd never noticed this before, at the moment when he says, fear not, Linus drops his blanket, like intentionally. And that is just animated cinematography storytelling at its absolute best, that Linus sees fit to drop his blanket, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, all that said, we're reading in Luke 2 today. You like how I did that? We got us there to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in Luke 2, 
verses 25 through 38. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd encourage you to get that out, but we always put it up on screen so that you can follow along. And this is what it says in Luke 2, 25 through 38. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, Phanuel, however you pronounce that, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem." So I was sitting down with this passage. Um, I, I was at Purdy's on Monday morning trying to construct everything, and I always take the passage and I'm looking at it like, okay, Lord, what do you want to say to us out of this? What is the main point of the text? All that. But my initial question um, that I just couldn't kind of get over was, why are they included? Why are Simeon and Anna included in Luke's gospel account? Because you may or may not know this, but Luke was the only gospel writer who mentioned Simeon and Anna at all. They're not found beforehand in Scripture. They're not found anywhere after. Luke is the only person who mentions them. And so why are they there? My theory, if you'll allow it, is that it's precisely because there's nothing particularly special about them aside from sheer faithfulness. That is the reason why they're included. So let, let's take a minute. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a second. Let's take a minute and let's just understand these two people. Let's understand Simeon and Anna and, and what we're told about them and what we understand them to be. So first of all is Simeon. Now Simeon, Luke describes, was a man. That's it. Okay? We're not told Simeon's profession. For all we know, he's a carpenter, he's a doctor, he's a lawyer, he's a city official, he's a government you know, worker, whatever. I don't, I don't know what he does. We don't know what he does. Because whatever it was, Luke did not see fit to include it in this passage. Simeon is just a man. He's just a person. But what we know about Simeon is his character. Okay, Simeon is described as being righteous, which means that he conducted his life in such a way that was dedicated to God. He, he kept God's laws. He kept God's commands. He was just. Whatever it is that he did for a living, he did it he did, it, uh, he did it well, he did it fairly, he did a good job, he didn't cut a corner, he didn't treat anyone any better or any worse than they deserved. He was just, he was fair, he was righteous. And can I just pause here to say that this type of reputation doesn't come to you because you go around saying, I'm righteous, look at me, I'm great, I volunteer here, I do this, that, and the other with my life. No, that's not what true righteousness does. True righteousness, like Simeon had, 
because, because word got around about Simeon and the type of person he was, that happens because you just conduct your life in a certain way. You, you do the doing when you be the being, as someone has once told me. And that's the way that Simeon was. Simeon was also devout. And in case you're not sure what that means, the, the, the simplest way that I can define that to you is that Simeon took God seriously. Okay, for, for our purposes here and now today, it means that when you leave church, you don't leave God behind at church. Okay? When you get in your car, when you go to lunch, when you spend the afternoon with your family or watching football and on Twitter and on Facebook and all the rest of it, when you go to bed, when you get up the next day, when you go to work the next day, you haven't forgotten about God. You don't just leave God in His Sunday morning category for the hour or two that you're at church. You don't just leave God in the box where you spend 10 or 15 minutes or however much time you spend in quiet time. You don't just leave God in the box of driving to work and listening to worship music. God is integrated, if you will, into your entire life. That's what that descriptor of devout means. And that's the way that Simeon was. We also understand that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Understand that Israel was was a nation with a long history of struggle and oppression and slavery. And for a long time, Israel was anticipating a Messiah. They were anticipating the liberator, someone who was going to bring freedom to the people of Israel. And as you read in the Gospels further, uh, some people get the idea that this is going to be a very literal and physical sense, that someone is going to physically liberate Israel, the nation, and give them political freedom. But Simeon, we presume, was not so much waiting for the event of the consolation of Israel. Simeon was waiting for the person who was going to be that consolation. But I don't want you to miss the fact that, that because Simeon was waiting, it meant that he was looking. Okay, Let me, let me put it to you like this. Tis the season for Amazon packages and other packages arriving in the mail, right? Did any of you order anything on Black Friday and you, like me, were disappointed that it didn't come two days later because after all, Amazon, I pay you to ship me stuff fast and then you say you lost it. What's the deal with that? But all that said, when you click order on your Amazon or whatever kind of order, you don't just usually click and forget. I would suggest that most of you spend your time anticipating that thing coming, right? Because usually it's something that you want. It's something you're looking forward to. It's a gift that you ordered for somebody and you're excited to wrap it up and package it and give it to that person. It might be a book that you're excited to read or a movie that you want to watch or a household item that you want to use or a piece of clothing that you want to wear. Whatever that is, we don't just usually forget about the things that we order. We look forward to it. Back in the day before uh, USPS invented their, their fancy little email where they send you in the morning what you're going to get uh, if you get those emails, um, it was always a big, a big to-do when, when you order something and then you're just waiting. And every day when you come home from school or you come home from work or you come home from running your errands, you check your mailbox and you're excited because this might be the day that I finally got the package that I ordered. Or you weren't expecting something and somebody just sent you something out of the blue and it's exciting because you get home and you look on your front porch and there's a package there and you don't know what that's all about. There just seems to be something in us that looks for these things. We look forward to things. We anticipate. It's kind of in our DNA. And so I wonder, as we talk about Advent, as we talk about this season, I wonder, and I ask myself this question, are you looking for God this season? 
When you walk in the doors of this place, are you expecting, are you looking for God to do something? When you open up your Bible in the morning and you spend your time in the Word, are you anticipating that God actually wants to say something to you? Or are you just kind of doing it because it's what you know you're supposed to do and you want to feel like you're a good God-fearing, church-going American person? I want to encourage you to look for God in this season. Simeon was looking, and I would suggest to you that it was the fact that he was looking that led to his righteous and devout lifestyle. We also understand that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, but I didn't prepare a whole to-do about that. It kind of speaks for itself. Um, So that is Simeon for us. Let's talk about Anna for just a moment as well. If we know little about Simeon, we know probably even less about Anna. We understand that Anna is from the tribe of Asher. And if you're like me, you look at that and you say, okay, what's the big deal with the tribe of Asher? Nothing. Okay? I'm just... Just honestly, that, that's the case. Asher was the son of a woman named Zilpha, who was the servant of a woman named Leah, who was the wife, but the lesser loved wife of Jacob. Okay, if you remember that story in the Old Testament, Jacob um, meets this, this woman or sees this woman named Rachel, and she's the most beautiful person she's ever, he's ever seen, and he wants to marry her. So he approaches her father, says, I want to marry your daughter. He says, work for me seven years. So he works seven years, and then he gives him Leah instead of Rachel. And so then he works another seven years to get Rachel. Anyway, all that said, that's the deal with Asher. He's the son of the servant of the lesser loved wife of Jacob. That is Asher. Um, So Anna has no particular pedigree. She, She has nothing spectacular about her, but we know what she does. She's a prophetess or a prophet, just female prophet is what prophetess means. She proclaims the word of God in the temple. She is there night and day. Have you ever gone to a restaurant or a coffee shop, and, and maybe it's an employee or maybe it's a customer, but you see them there in the same place every single time that you're there, and you want to ask them, and sometimes you do ask them, what, do you like live here or something? Well, that's the deal with Anna. She was in the temple day in, day out, worshiping, fasting, and praying, ever present. And so I would encourage you, as we look at this passage, you say, okay, what, what does that have to do with me? What's your prayer life like? What's your worship like, life like? And I, I want to encourage you, uh, worship isn't just singing. This is one expression of worship, and it's an important expression of worship, but worship is so much more than that. Okay, worship isn't just serving. Worship isn't just doing the stuff. Okay, let me, let me put it to you this way. If you are married, okay, husbands especially, because I'm a husband and that's just kind of the language that I speak, okay, uh, it's all good if you serve, if you, if you take out the trash, do the dishes, clean the bathroom, wash the car, mow the lawn, scrub the toilet, pay the bills, all that kind of stuff. But if you never take your wife on a date, you're just serving, right? You're not in an actual relationship. And so there's something about actually spending time with God, listening to God, speaking to God, singing to God, worshiping and adoring God. Those things are very important because All service is worship, but not all worship is service. Does that make sense? All right. We know that Anna was a widow. Um, It's not clear. If you want to get into the the technical kind of mechanics of the text, she might have been uh, a widow until she was 84 years old. She might have also been a widow for 84 years up until this point. It's a little bit unclear. Scholars aren't sure which one that means. But suffice it to say, it's a long time. And Anna understood a level of loss and grief that a lot of us don't understand, thankfully and mercifully, okay? 
It's not that she didn't mourn, not that she didn't have days where that loss stung more than others, but her pain didn't keep her out of the temple. It didn't keep her from worshiping and fasting and praying and proclaiming God's message. A message which included a Messiah. A message that declared hope to people who were oppressed and occupied and opposed at every turn. And a message of hope to people who were looking for hope. Okay, so if we return to that original question, why does Luke tell us about Simeon and Anna? I tend to be of the mind that Luke tells us about them because we can learn from these people what it looks like uh, about, or, or sorry, Luke, Luke tells us about Simeon and Anna so that we understand a few things about people who have hope. Okay, so number one, a hope-filled person is humble. I believe part of the reason that Simeon and Anna are mentioned is precisely because of the fact that they are relatively obscure. For all intents and purposes, their role, biblically, is to herald the Messiah, is to tell about the Messiah. They were two devout individuals who, 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 who proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, and they had a humble witness. People saw and knew and understood the righteousness that Simeon embodied, the devoutness that he embodied. So when Simeon said, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, people took notice and people, took, people listened because of the way that Simeon conducted his life. When Anna spoke to people about Jesus, she spoke to people who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, and people knew because Anna was, was, she was the old widow who lived in the temple, and she worshiped, and she prayed, and she fasted, and people listened to Anna. People took notice. And here's the deal. Some of you this Advent season, you might feel discouraged because you don't feel like you're making a big difference. You may not feel like you are producing, as it were, for the kingdom of God. You may not feel like you're sharing your faith with everyone you meet, that, 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 that you're not giving enough, you're not serving enough, you're not praying enough, you're not this, that, and the other. You're not doing enough. You, you see other people, and God is answering their prayers, and they're praying for people, and God's healing them, and, and God's fulfilling uh, calls on their lives and opening up doors for them, and you just find yourself at a place where you say, God, am I doing this right? Like, what, what's wrong with me that I'm not seeing all these things happen? And I'm just here to tell you today that your faithfulness matters. It matters so much. Simeon and Anna were two people whose lives were unspectacular, and in the case of Anna, full of grief and loss and suffering. But what made them amazing, what made them worth mentioning was their faithfulness. So maybe you go to work every single day, and you work hard and you work well. Maybe you run a business, manage people, oversee uh, projects, or teach classes, or whatever it is that you do, And you do it in a way that's ethical, honorable, effective, and ultimately good. You're faithful to your spouse, you're loving to your children, you serve your family, you serve your church, whatever. Guess what? You, my friend, are creating a humble witness. You are living a life that people notice. You are modeling what hope looks like. Okay, Hope that doesn't have to take center stage. Hope that doesn't have to leapfrog people to get to where you need to be. Hope that gives, hope that perseveres, and hope that sees through to the end. Your life doesn't have to be amazing. It doesn't have to be noteworthy. It doesn't have to be Instagram-worthy every single day. You don't need to be the life of the party. You don't need to be the smartest and wisest and greatest person in the room to give witness to hope. What matters more than being interesting 
is being obedient. I want you to understand that. Now, please don't hear me say that you just got to put your head down and do your stuff and and God's never going to get in the way of that. Sometimes, because we're vineyard, okay, we believe that the Holy Spirit's going to prompt you to do some stuff and it might take you out of your comfort zone and he might say, hey, go over there and pray for somebody or hey, go over there and buy that guy lunch or whatever that looks like, okay? I'm just here to tell you, you don't have to have the greatest success story in the world. Do you ever think about the fact that for every Moses that you have in the Bible, Moses was the leader, the liberator of the people of Israel. He went before Pharaoh. He said, let my people go. God spoke through Moses. All these kind of great things. But for every Moses, there were countless Israelite people. And their job, their function, was to be God's covenant people. To live in God's land. To be God's people. We just did a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And in case you didn't know, there was one Nehemiah and a whole host of other people. And what they did was they built, and they carried stuff, and they kept guard. It takes a team. Their roles were important. For every Paul, who was the greatest church planner in human history, so far I'd like to think, I'd like to see somebody overtake that eventually, but for every Paul, there were loads of people who assisted him in ministry, gave him a place to stay, fed him, went out and did ministry with him. They didn't get books published in the Bible, but their role was important. And we have to know that. Number two, a hope-filled person is anchored. The writer of Hebrews says this. He's speaking about the promise of God. This is Hebrews 6.19, the first half or so of the verse. And it says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And obviously, if you consider the function of an anchor, its, its design, its purpose, its role is to hold a vessel in place. And so for us, Hope produces a sense of faithfulness. It keeps us in the same place. When our souls are anchored into the proverbial seabed of God's truth, then it keeps them from going all over the place. It keeps them from going this way and that and chasing after things that we are tempted to believe that are going to satisfy us. Okay? When we realize that Jesus Christ offers true rest, then all of a sudden we don't have to rely on artificial rest or escapism, whether that's alcohol or sex or pornography or the next big event or trip or vacation or achievement or whatever that is, we don't become people who just live for the weekend and the next thing that we're looking forward to. When we realize that Jesus Christ offers us true joy, then we don't become reliant upon artificial joy, whether that's money or things that we can buy with money or things that we can experience, that we can experience, places we can go, or the people or relationships that we cast the burden of joy onto. We don't become reliant on those things. When we realize that Jesus Christ offers us true peace, then we don't rely on artificial peace. Whether that's the chase for enough money in our bank account or our 401k, whether that's the absence of conflict in our relationships or the perfect job, perfect house, the feeling of achievement we get from finishing a task or a degree or whatever that is, we don't become reliant upon those things. When we realize that God is eternal, everything else is temporary, then it allows us to face the reality that while there are lots of things that are there for us to enjoy, okay, vacation, sex, alcohol, in context, okay, relationships, events, experiences, money, all those things, they're not ultimately there to satisfy us. They're not ultimately there to, to make us whole. They will all fade away. 
Okay, the bottle gets empty, the money gets spent, the people that you love will let you down at some point and in some form or fashion. Okay, the vacation's going to end, the weekend's going to give way to the work week, and it's all going to repeat itself over and over again. Pastor Joe shared a, a portion of this passage last week, but I think it bears repeating here. This is Romans 8, 22 through 24. Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Therefore, a person who's filled with hope will be faithful. They will be anchored. Simeon was faithful while he waited and while he hoped for the consolation of Israel. He, he conducted his life in a righteous and devout fashion. He lived faithful to the revelation of God in Scripture and devoted to Him. Anna spent her long, widowed life in the temple, constantly praying, fasting, and proclaiming the message of God. And I'm just here to tell you that there were probably things that these people missed out on. Okay, there, were, there were other ways that they could have spent their lives. There were other ways that they could have conducted their affairs. They could have done something else, but faithfulness led them to live the life that they lived. Faithfulness costs you something. Faithfulness means that you don't get to do every single thing that's out there. Faithfulness doesn't hedge a bet. And faithfulness means that you don't have a backup plan to the thing, or in our case, the person that we're hoping in. If my hope is in Christ then I must abandon all hope in my money. Everything that's in my bank account. I'm not hoping in that. I'm not trusting in that. It's fine that I have it, but I'm not counting on that. It's not saving me. I have to abandon all hope in my charisma, any intelligence that I have, any experience that I have, any goodness or morality that I have, any hope that I have in fleeting things that might offer me a little bit of happiness but are never going to fulfill me or sustain me or renew me or transform me. Again, that doesn't mean that we can't have any of those things. It doesn't mean that those things don't have a place and a function. Use your gifts, but your gifts don't save you. Okay? We need to be aware of that. Number three, a hope-filled person is persistent. Okay? If hope is an anchor, then hope, when it truly sinks in, causes you to stay Godward. It allows you to take on, as you, as you may have heard from one source or another, what, what, what's called a long obedience in the same direction. Hope allows you, like Simeon, to live a life that people call righteous and devout. Hope allows you, like Anna, to be faithful, to, to, to worship, to pray and fast regularly in spite of your status in, in, in society because widows were not high in society in that day and in spite of your grief and the things that you've lost in your life. The writer of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, faith is the lifestyle of a person who is confident that they will get the thing that they are hoping for. Confident they'll see it and persistent until the end. And then, of course, after saying this, the writer of Hebrews goes on to recount the lives of faithful people, the things they did and experienced. And then it says this towards the end of the chapter. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, 
quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from, the, from us, they should not be made perfect. All of these, the writer says, did not receive what was promised because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. The person of God, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus was the promise. And if a person who's full of hope is humble and and anchored and persistent, then Jesus is the ultimate example of all those things. Because Jesus left his throne in heaven, left the presence of God, left the praise of angels to come and be with us. Because Jesus humbled himself. He he washed the feet of his servants. He, He took on the role of a servant. Jesus refused to grasp his equality with God. Jesus is the ultimate example of being anchored. He never sinned. He never put a foot wrong. He only ever did what he saw the Father doing. And Jesus is the ultimate example of being persistent. Jesus, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, and I believe with all my heart, that joy was the many sons that were going to be brought to glory. Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for the saints. That is you and me. And that, my friends, is our hope this Advent season. We set our hope on Jesus who came to reveal the Father. Jesus who came to inaugurate the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God on the earth. Jesus who came to to bring us back to God, to restore our relationship, to set things right. And Jesus, who we hope and we trust, will one day return and make all things new. That's our hope this Advent season. And so as we go into this song, I want to invite you to go ahead and stand to your feet. And I want to encourage you. These folks are up here and they want to pray with you. That's why they are here this morning. They want to pray with you. And I don't want you to miss the opportunity to receive prayer. And it can be about anything that's going on, anything that you're facing right now, any of the difficulty or hardship that come with this season. But as I was, as I was preparing this week, I asked the Lord if there was anyone specifically that he wanted to speak to this week. And I believe that he told me that there is someone who has wandered because they've lost hope. They lost sight of their hope. And you've wandered. And you find yourself in a place where you're broken, you're hurting, you're lonely, whatever that is. And you feel, because you can go back and you can justify the fact that it's your fault. And because because it's your fault, 
You feel like God can't or won't or shouldn't forgive you. God can't or won't or shouldn't be near you. But friends, that's the whole deal with Advent, is that Jesus came to be with us. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, because it's his good pleasure to do that. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you, come up here and receive some prayer. Let somebody pray with you. Don't miss that opportunity this morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for our hope. We want to thank you for Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for this season that we celebrate, where we celebrate Jesus coming humbly to live with us. We want to thank you for the life of Jesus where he never put a foot wrong. He never sinned and he did everything only that he saw you doing. And we want to thank you, God, for for this hope that is an anchor for our souls. God, nothing else in this life is going to satisfy. No relationships, no experiences, no achievements, no amount of money, no amount of pleasure, nothing like that, God, is going to satisfy us. And so we come before you this morning and we cast all our other hope aside and we put all of our hope in you this morning, Jesus. We need you. So we say, come Holy Spirit, would you be in this place with us? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you encourage where you need to encourage? Would you convict and challenge where you need to convict and challenge? Would you have your way in this place? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.